get back to Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, when you think of baseball, people have had effects on the game. Effects on the game of baseball. You think of players, managers, management. But this gentleman, our next guest, he had one of the biggest influences in baseball in the last probably 50 years. He changed the whole way it operates. No question about it. No question he should be in the Hall of Fame either. Marvin Miller. How are you doing, Mr. Miller? Uh, just fair. Thank you. So how did you get involved with baseball back in the 60s? <laughs> well, uh, uh, I was working with a, a, a committee of uh, uh, people from the Steelworkers Union where I was employed, and the... Uh, Kaiser Steel Company, and uh, we had a, uh, a tripartite committee. Uh, it was chaired by uh, Dr. George Taylor, uh, who was uh, 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 from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, one of the best-known uh, uh, of the early arbitrators in labor management relations. Uh, and, uh, he and I got on the same elevator going to the same meeting, and he uh, uh, asked me, uh, do you know Robin Roberts? And I said, no, but I know who he is, of course. And uh, he's a great pitcher of the Phillies. And uh, I said, well, why do you ask? And uh, from there, he told me that there was a committee of players who were troubled by conditions in baseball. Uh, especially in their pension plan, and they wanted somebody who was familiar with actuarial calculations and pension plan and negotiations to help them. And uh, before the elevator got us to the floor, we were going, he wanted to know if I was interested. <laughs> and uh, I said, I, I really don't know, uh, but I would be willing to talk with them. And uh, so he put me in touch with what the players called a search committee, which consisted of Roberts and uh, Jim Bunning and Harvey Keene and uh, uh, Pittsburgh pitcher Bob Friend. And uh, uh, I met with them. Uh, uh, Taylor put us in touch with each other. And I met with them in, uh, in Cleveland uh, just before Christmas 1965. And uh, it went on from there. That was the, the first contact with, uh, with Major League Baseball. Now, growing up in the Bronx, were you a Yankees fan or a baseball <laughs> no, fan at all? I, I, yeah, I did not grow up in the Bronx. I was born in the Bronx, Okay, but my parents bought a house in Brooklyn uh, when I was about a year old. So I don't remember the Bronx at all uh, from that period. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, of course I was a baseball fan. I lived not too far from Ebbets Field, and uh, uh, from the time I was... Really, very small. Uh, I, I, you know, like everybody else, like in Brooklyn, I collected cards and, and uh, memorabilia about about players. And uh, and finally, when I was about uh, ten or eleven years old, I talked my father into letting me go to Everett Field alone. And it was, you know, it was only three subway stops. And uh, I was a Brooklyn fan. Uh, uh, Used to go there whenever there were double headers and stand in line for a bleacher seat and and so on. And 
I, I found it useful later on when when people ask me, uh, uh, how did you get interested in baseball? You know, they're interested. They're asking me about my, my connection with it as an adult. And uh, the shorthand answer was, uh, uh, I, I lived in Brooklyn, not far from Everett's Field, and, and everybody understood from, from that point on uh, why I was interested in baseball. So that's why you basically hooked up with Sandy Colfax and Drysdale when they were holding out, because you said, you know what, i got to protect my favorite players. <laughs> well, I didn't really hook up with them. Uh, I wasn't yet employed in the spring of 66, uh, uh, but uh, I knew about the joint holdout, and uh, uh, I, I wished them well, but I, I had no official duties yet. And, uh, uh, in fact, I didn't, I didn't meet uh, Koufax or Drysdale in spring training on my first uh, go-around in the spring of 66 because they were holding out. And uh, uh, the first time I met Sandy uh, was at the All-Star game that year in, in St. Louis. And uh, I, I met him. He pitched, I think, the first three innings and, and was his usual brilliant self. And uh, it was uh, one of the, the hottest days on record. And uh, people were fainting all over, all over the stadium. And the, the stretch of bears were running around. And... Uh, I uh, I apparently didn't look too comfortable, but people told me to uh, uh, take shelter in the in the uh, National League's uh, dressing room because it was air conditioned. And uh, so I went down there, and and there was no one in the room except uh, Koufax, and that's where I met him. I remember that day, having grown up in St. Louis, and it, and uh-huh. it was about as hot as it ever got there. Uh, oh, the heat, uh, the humidity. You know, that were... was just awful. Yeah, I was wearing a short sleeve shirt, and I'd forget every once in a while, put my arms on the on the railing of the seat, and Ouch. <laughs> jump from the burn. <laughs> yeah. How did you get elected head of the MLBPA back in '66? Well, uh, it's, it's really quite a long story, but uh, let me cut to the chase. The, the, the search committee was, was favorably impressed, and they, uh, they nominated me, uh, uh, or they, they recommended me for nomination uh, to the, what they called their, their executive board, which was uh, the elected player reps of each club. And... Uh, uh, I was nominated by them, and uh, I, uh, I accepted the nomination. And I, uh, I, I said I, I, I didn't think they should vote until I had an, an opportunity to visit and meet with them all. Until the vote was postponed because the, the appointment was conditional upon all of the players uh, voting. And uh, what I didn't even know at the time was that. In addition to the players, there was the coaches, the managers, and the trainers, uh, some of whom were considered management employees, and they were voting too. Uh, at any rate, I, I made the uh, trip, met, met all the players, talked with each club uh, in the spring of 66, and uh, was elected uh, by a vote of, of 489 to 136. And uh, uh, that's how. Did the owners and the representatives know what to make of you at first? 
Not really. Not really. Uh, there was a, a vast uh, non-understanding of, of what a union was and what its function was and, uh, and what was going on. Uh, the management uh, reacted as you, you might expect uh, most managements to react. Uh, they got very nervous, and they began propagandizing uh, every place where we go. And they would tell the players that uh, uh, you can't vote for this guy. It's going to be a, uh, 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 ruled by the Teamsters. How the, how the hell that came in, I don't know. The Teamsters had nothing to do with it. Uh, and it's going to be gangsters, and it's going to be uh, all kinds of things, and you can't vote for this guy. So, so the, the the presidents of each league and uh, other officials from the commissioner's office were making the rounds, uh, both ahead of me and behind me, to make sure the players didn't vote for me. But but it didn't work. When you negotiated the first CBA, you got the minimum salary increase from six thousand to ten thousand. The players must have loved you when you did that. Well, it wasn't just that. Uh, we negotiated uh, an entirely new pension plan. You know, the, the pension plan had been in effect for nineteen years at that point, and in one negotiation, we doubled and more than doubled every single benefit, uh, both health care and retirement, and uh, widow's benefits, and disability benefits, and everything. Uh, so it was, I know everybody talks about the, the minimum salary going up 6 to 10. That's accurate. That was a, uh, it was ridiculous, you know. The, the uh, first minimum salary was in 1947, and it was 5000 a year. So 19 years later, they had... Managed to raise it one thousand dollars a year, and, and, and some of the worst inflationary years that we have on record. And uh, but that was just one of the things we did. It was the beginning of of uh, uh, negotiating uh, a whole recognition agreement that uh, the union represented as the sole representative of, of uh, all of the players, and we uh, we. Uh, in the first negotiations, we, we uh, they agreed on a on a study of the reserve clause, see if there were alternatives to it, because I raised the issue immediately, and uh, uh, lots more was accomplished. Uh, it's a, it would be too long to tell you, but it was uh, the things you've mentioned were important, but there were other important things too. Now, Andy Messersmith, Dave McNally played without a signed contract. Whose idea was that, and, and why did the ball clubs allow that? Did they not see that something down the road could be happening? Well, there was nothing they could do about it. Uh, you have to understand that the, uh, the reserve clause, which uh, made all of them pieces of property, uh, was really a, uh, a phony uh, thing. It never really... Uh, uh, provided that players were, were captive for their whole careers. They just pretended to be. And because what it said was, you know, everybody was under one-year contracts in those days. And what it said was, when your contract expires, the management ownership can renew the contract without your signature 
for one additional year. And uh, uh, that's all it said. Now, one additional year is not a lifetime. And uh, you don't have to be a genius to know that. And the first time I saw that, I recognized that this, this clause is going to fall. And uh, uh, when, you, when you talk about Messrs. Smith-McNally, uh, it's very simple. Uh, uh, there were players before them who considered this, but who, who were bought out by management uh, sometimes on the last day of the season. But uh, what happened with, with uh, Andy Messersmith, you know, he had been a, a really top-notch pitcher first in, in uh, the American League with the California Angels, uh, where he had won 20 games a number of times, and then he had been traded to the Dodgers, uh, where he won 19 games his first year with them, and he was simply unhappy with the contract that they were offering him. Did the, owners uh, real, did the owners realize when you got arbitration as part of the collective bargaining agreement what was going to happen, that these salaries were going to start rising? I can't tell you what the owners knew or did not know. Uh, did you envision it? I'm sorry? Did you see that happening, that these salaries would keep escalating to the amount that they did? Uh, of course. You have to understand that getting rid of the reserve clause was was not a one-day proposition. First of all, the players had to understand that the so-called lifetime control was a phony. And they had to understand that it was a uh, a winning thing to get rid of it. And that, uh, uh, you know, it's very hard to uh, explain to uh, to people who uh, have been indoctrinated to believe that uh, it's wonderful just to be a major leaguer. And uh, when you would say to them that they were exploited and, and really unmercifully, you know, in 1966, when I came in, the average major league salary was $19,000 a year. And then the minimum was six, and there was a ceiling on what you could earn uh, at 100. And, uh, you know, if you, no matter if you were Babe Ruth or, or Stan Musial or Ted, Ted, Ted Williams or anybody, uh, they had this illegal ceiling on salary. And I mean illegal under the antitrust laws. And you tell players who are indoctrinated to believe that that's the best of all possible worlds, that you can't have any dignity to a relationship, you can't have any, any power in your, you know, in your collective bargaining as long as they control uh, where you play and you have no, no say about it and when you play uh, and that they can bar you from baseball. Uh, people, uh, even of that day, did not understand that a, a player who was put on one of the inactive lists uh, for disciplinary reasons could not play in organized baseball anywhere, not in the United States, not in Canada, not in Puerto Rico, not in Mexico, not in the Dominican Republic, not in Venezuela, not in Japan. Nowhere. They were barred from the only profession they knew. And this was a constant threat over every player. And in that kind of situation, you can't bargain as an equal. No matter who you are, you just can't. 
and uh, as uh, uh, as Joe DiMaggio found a few few years later, uh, even one of the greatest players uh, of his time and of all the time, uh, they treat it like a piece of property. Yeah. And uh, uh, but when you told players what they how exploited they were, how they were underpaid. You know, it's hard for them to understand and believe you until you get an example. And uh, uh, actually, the the grievance of Catfish Hunter uh, the year before the Messersmith case was was the key to unlocking the players' understanding. Because uh, uh, while the uh, Hunter case only involved uh, Hunter because it, it was a, a failure to... Uh, respect his contract, uh, it, it didn't change anything for anybody else. But when Hunter became a free agent because of an arbitrator's decision, uh, <laughs> I mean, he was one of the premier players in the American League. He was getting $100,000 a year. And then uh, <laughs> in, in the first few weeks after he became a free agent, uh, the offers went up to $3 million of five-year guaranteed contracts. And that did the trick. Uh, players immediately understood that what I was saying was I was telling them the truth, that they have badly underpaid, that you can't negotiate a legitimate contract when you're a piece of property. But look, look what happens when you're free. And uh, uh, so the Hunter case was extremely important. Uh, Mrs. Smith... Uh, uh, called me to say that uh, they had uh, he was in disagreement with Walter O'Malley about what O'Malley was offering him and uh, they had eventually notified him that they had renewed his contract without his signature and he wanted to know what that meant and so I explained to him that uh, if he wanted he could play without signing a contract because he now had a contract that was renewed. It was a perfectly legitimate contract. And he said, well, if I play without a contract, what happens? I said, what happens is, they, they won't tell you this, but what happens is their right to renew you for one year will run out at the end of the year. And uh, I am convinced that if we can change the grievance procedure, so that instead of the owner's employee, the commissioner, who was paid and, and, and recruited by the owner, uh, 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 most improper arbitrator of a dispute between owner's employer, uh, a conflict of interest that's, that's as glaring as an open garage, that uh, if we can change that and get an impartial arbitrator uh, approved, by both sides, who will make final and binding decisions, I'm confident that we're going to overturn the reserve clause. Uh, the one year, the one year is one year, and that's it. And after that, you're a free agent. And so, Mr. Smith uh, uh, played under a renewed contract without signing it, uh, because I told him if you sign it, you're going to extend the one year to another one year. And so he didn't sign it. And uh, uh, more happened after that, but I've given you the basic facts 
right. of, of what happened there. Uh, the, he went the entire season of uh, 1975, I guess, uh, without signing it. He played on, under a contract that had been renewed w- without his signature. Uh, and he was a, uh, his grievance was that he was a free agent. And he, the owners were disputing that. And what the arbitrator said merely is that one year is one year. And it wasn't a startling decision at all. <laughs> now, before Messersmith and McNally, there was the case of Kurt Flood, and that went to the Supreme Court, and he, he lost. Was there something that Flood could have done to have won? I don't think so. Uh, I kept, uh, you know, I was in close touch with Kurt. Kurt Flood all that period, and uh, I worried about a, a, uh, a you know, the, the star center fielder of our time after Willie Mays. I worried that he was going to end his career with, with a lawsuit, and I worried that it was a, a fruitless thing because the court had already ruled that baseball was not covered by the antitrust laws. It had ruled, ruled that three times already. And uh, if there's one thing about the court, they, they hate to uh, second-guess themselves. And uh, and so, you know, they have a, a doctrine called stare decisis, which all means that basically let the prior decisions stand. And, uh, and I kept uh, telling Kurt that it, it was going to be fruitless, and it worried me that he would be ending his career because... If he sued baseball, he'd be out for an unknown length of time. And, you know, he was getting to be 31 years old. And uh, that's a very difficult sport to play. And uh, you don't just uh, uh, re-adapt to star-quality play after being out several years. And it could be several years. It happened that it wasn't several years, but... uh, it could have been, and I, I did not think we could win the case, and I told Kurt that. But you could, uh, un- you can understand from his perspective of feeling like an indentured uh, servant. Absolutely. Look, my admiration for Kurt is second to no one. Uh, he's a man of principle, a man of integrity, and a man who understood what civil rights and civil liberties were. And he was very concerned, not just about himself, but about teammates and players yet to come. And uh, his concerns were real, and they're not, they were not put on. And uh, he, he said he understood the, uh, the possibilities of the end of his career that I was outlining, but he was going to do it anyway. Do you think the tide has turned too far in the players' favor now, where the salaries are way too high and out of proportion to basically what the average American earns? <laughs> Let me tell you about that. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, people say that all the time. And these are people who believe in our economic system. Uh, you know, they have this uh, crazy abject faith in, in the profit system and uh, the, the market controlling everything and, and that... Uh, uh, the market tells you who is valuable and who isn't and how valuable. And they say that about everything except baseball. And, 
you know, if, if they look at, at people, uh, other people in, in various fields who, who make millions of dollars and sometimes tens of millions of dollars in one year, they think that's fine. That shows that we have a great profit system. And somehow a baseball player <laughs> doesn't, doesn't earn what he's paid. Let me explain that the baseball player is under the most, uh, uh, the most terrific check and balance system uh, that other people are. And I will explain. If, if a chief executive officer of a, of a major corporation, uh, a CEO, uh, wants his, his compensation adjusted, uh, he, he goes to his, his board of directors, most of whom he has appointed. You understand? Yes, yes. And, and sometimes it's called a compensation committee of several board members, all of whom he has appointed. And they make the determination of what he should get. Sometimes millions and millions of dollars per year. Sometimes uh, more than that as a, as a severance payment for an executive who has failed. And all of this is done by fellow executives from other corporations whom he has appointed, and they don't pay for it, obviously. They, these strangers who are uh, really in a conflict of interest because they would like to see executive salaries uh, go through the sky because they are executives themselves, they vote what he should get, and then the stockholders who have no voice pay for it. Now, if you, if you ever saw a, a distribution system that was meant for inequities, that's it. But in baseball, there has always been a rule, still is a rule, that no player's contract is valid unless it is signed by the man who owns the club. In other words, the man who pays for it must sign it before it becomes valid. So that uh, in baseball alone, compared to some of these other industries, is there this check and balance system because the guy who pays for it out of his pocket is the guy who decides whether he will sign it or not. And that's a, a far better system <laughs> than, than appointing a bunch of toadies who, who are not going to pay for it to, to decide your compensation. And these owners wouldn't be giving out these big salaries unless they th thought it was worthwhile on some level, and you have to think well, that that's exactly. a financial level. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, well, let me hasten to add to be super fair here. Uh, we're all human beings, and we all make mistakes. Uh, does an owner ever overrate a player? Yes. Uh, he may, for various reasons, uh, Including uh, uh, false abilities to uh, to be a scout and, and uh, decide the potential of a player, he may well make a mistake, and you may find here and there a player who uh, is is overpaid in the sense of uh, what uh, market value really is. Here's here's what I don't here's what I don't get though. All you did for baseball. The salaries increased. You helped the players, helped the former players. The pensions went up, everything like that. You take a guy like Gene Upshot, the NFL, getting $12 million a year. 
he did nothing for the former players. Do you kind of think to yourself, uh, I should have went and helped the NFL players? Yeah. Well, but you have to understand that, that uh, uh, take, take the last two, uh, you're talking about Hall of Fame votes? Right. Oh, yeah. You, well, they're, they're not even looking at you because you upset the owners. Yeah, well, you have to understand, the last two votes, you know, uh, about two years ago and five years ago, uh, I received the unanimous vote of every single player on those two different committees over a five-year period. I received the 100% vote, not a 75% vote, but a 100% vote of every player on those committees who was voting who was not a management person following the end of his baseball playing career. Uh, They they would put ex-players on the committee, some of whom uh, had been management people for longer periods than they ever were players. And uh, some of them were were people who uh, didn't know me from Adam. They were pre-union players. They didn't have the faintest idea of, of what I did or what the union did. Uh, but if you, you you left them to one side and just took the, the, the players whose, whose connection to baseball ended with the end of their playing careers, I got 100% of their vote in each of those two elections. And in addition, the media people on each of those committees, I got 100% of the vote in each of those two votes from the, the media. Uh, now, you know, j- just to put it in perspective, uh, Babe Ruth didn't get 100% of the vote from the media. Uh, uh, no, no, Ted Williams. And, uh, no, Joe DiMaggio. Uh, and on and on like that. So, uh, all you're talking about, and the votes that uh, failed by one like last time, 11 votes instead of 12, all you're talking about is the management has always managed to put management people in a sufficient number on a committee so that you can't get 75%. If in a committee, it's like the last one, there were 16 people voting, and uh, you needed 12, and uh, they made sure they had five or more management people uh, so that you couldn't get to 12. And they did the same three years before that, when the voting committee was 12 and you needed nine votes to, to be elected, uh, they made sure that the management people numbered four or more, and so you couldn't get nine votes. So uh, it's a straight rigging of the committee, and it's, it's, not, it's not the former players who are failing to vote for me. They, uh, in each time, if a former player on a, on a voting committee as long as he uh, is not currently a management person afraid of losing his job and his only job he's got, uh, as long as he's not in that category, I've been getting 100% of the vote. And uh, as somebody said, you can't do better than that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. And you're a Hall of Famer in our book. And anybody who knows well, anything about baseball knows you should be in. Well, I, I thank you and... and uh, yeah, look, uh, just to, just to get it straight, some things uh, are past their time, and uh, and this is one of them. Uh, it, it doesn't distress me 
uh, in some ways, you know, when I look at the vote and find that all of the players who are not management voted for me and all of the media voted for me, uh, that's satisfaction enough. You know, uh, I, I'm not a child. Uh, you, you, you're up against a rigged election. You, you, uh, you don't expect anything. I never did expect it, frankly, uh, because I, I know what they're capable of. And uh, it doesn't distress me. And uh, you may not know it, but I have asked repeatedly in writing uh, to uh, leave me off the ballot because I'm not interested. And uh, they ignore it. And they, they, and they put me on the ballot. And then they rig the things so that I can't be elected. And that's silly. No, and it is. Thank you childish. so much. You're absolutely right, but you know what? You did your job. You're the head of the Players Association, and you took care of the players, and they show it by voting for you every time, so you should be proud of that. Thank you again. I I am, and and, uh, I enjoy talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was should-be Hall of Famer Marvin Miller. We want to thank our guest today, Marvin Miller. We also want to thank Laria Daniels and her sound men for doing another great job. Dave Olson. Does he have a name? Dave Olson. Okay. You listen to Sports and Torts. Tune in again next week. Thank you.